chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 18 this evening. And just to kind of set the context for just a moment, in the previous verses we, we learn about how Moses, the great prophet, had died. It was a heartbreaking moment, for sure. And to the people, they were on the threshold of the promised land, but there's a looming question, who in the world is going to lead them? How would the nation respond to this man's leadership? We learn that it's Joshua, but the latter question remains. How will the people respond to him? How is Joshua actually going to lead? We'll see as we move forward. Before we read these verses, would you pray with me once more? O great God, you who have blessed us with the Scriptures, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would stoop and that you would draw near to us, that you would bless your word to our souls, that you would remind us of Christ, that you would teach us how to live in view of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 10 through verse 18. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving, is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. We give thanks to God for his holy word and ask that he would use it in our lives. When you want to do something, I'm sure that you know that preparation is key. Think with me for just a moment about war. Weapons must be stockpiled. Soldiers, trains, and strategy, detailed. You've got to know about the weather, the geography, roads, and much more. You must have a plan for food and supplies, as well as POWs and deserters. Without preparation, there likely will be no victory. And even on a smaller scale, we all recognize that preparation is important. You're getting ready to go to the beach. Make sure that you prepare, right? Or if, you, if you're about to have a summer pool party, what do you have to do? A lot of things. You need to prepare. Preparation is key. 
And that was no less true for the Israelites as they were about to enter the promised land. They too needed to prepare. And the same is true for us. Because you see, we are on the threshold of the promised land. Eternal life. Now I know that at times it may not feel like that reality is close by. Because we, we get distracted from these truths. We struggle to embrace them at times. But the fact of the matter is that heaven is closer than we think, especially as Christians. Are we prepared? What does preparation entail for us as believers? What did it involve for Joshua and the people? I want you to think about three things. First, instruction, verses 10 and 11. Now, leading up to our passage, there were huge question marks regarding what was next after the death of Moses. Well, the Lord provided the answers, right? Who would lead? Well, that would be Joshua. Where would they go? To the promised land. But this was no normal task with a manual that you could just pull down and, and start reading. It wasn't like assembling a bookshelf from Ikea even though that takes forever to do, at least for me personally. But it does at least have some instructions in there. It wouldn't simply be completed after a few hours. This would entail leading people, a million people, into a territory that's filled with enemies. The people of Israel, didn't, they, they didn't have the best of reputations as being easy to lead, right? We just read about it. In Exodus chapter 32, now, they were known for grumbling against their leaders, complaining about their circumstances, and doubting God and His promises. And on top of this was the person that was called to lead, Joshua. Joshua had no experience. He didn't have a PhD, he didn't have a PhD in organizational leadership. He's never done anything like this before, not on this scale. And yet, in verses 1 through 9 of the book, Joshua chapter 1, Joshua was charged with governing this people. He was to be strong and, and courageous. Even when Israel was difficult, he was to faithfully shepherd them. Even when armies arrayed against them were great, he was to faithfully press ahead even when he was unsure what to do, Joshua was to lead. He was not supposed to let fear freeze him, but was to hear Yahweh's promises, trust Yahweh's word, and meditate on Yahweh's pledges. And yet, how did Joshua respond to the instruction that had been given to him? What did he do? It's one thing to hear it, to hear God's instruction. It's another to actually receive it rightly. So what did he do? Look at verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people. Do you see that? The conjunction at the beginning of that sentence, and, it's, it's important there's one little letter in the Hebrew, but it packs a punch. It tells us that Joshua didn't waffle. 
He didn't wonder, should I trust the Lord's promises to give me success and to be with me no matter what? Instead, Joshua heard and then he immediately obeyed. He got busy leading the people. And he didn't do it with a whining spirit about him. What God told him to do, lead the people, he did it with a glad heart. And surely he is an example for us. Our obedience to the Lord is to be prompt, complete, and joyful. Wasn't that how Christ obeyed? I mean, he's the greater Joshua who kept every jot and tittle of the law for our salvation. And he didn't wait to obey, but he did it immediately, staring at the prospect of suffering on the cross. He said to the Father, take this cup away from me, but not my will, yet yours be done. And for the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross. And brothers and sisters, we are called to follow him, to imitate Joshua and Jesus and have right away, all the way, and happy-hearted obedience, because that's the right response to God's grace. His saving mercies in Christ ought to gratefully compel us to such obedience to His law. His love in the gospel should drive us to dutifully do His will because we're so thankful for His mercy in Jesus. Think about Joshua a little bit more, though. Consider what he commanded the officers to actually do. Look at verse 11. Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go into take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Joshua charged the heads of the various tribes to get the people ready because the day that they had been dreaming of was approaching and they needed to prepare. Prepare what? Food? There would be no more manna in the promised land. And possessions? They would need some of them to set up shop for building homes and growing crops. Preparation was needed before crossing Jordan's banks. Perhaps this evening you see the connection for us because we are standing on Jordan's banks, so to speak. The river that separates us from the promised land is right in front of us. Death is near, and we must prepare. How? By giving attention to Yahweh's instruction. And what does Yahweh enfleshed, Jesus, tell us to consider in the face of death? A lot of answers to that question. Let me give you two. It's at least these two things. First, repent. That's how you prepare for death. Remember in Luke chapter 13, how Jesus responded to a group of people who told him about how 
Pilate had killed a group of Galileans and mixed their blood with sacrifices. You recall that? Jesus said, don't think they were worse sinners than you. And don't assume the 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them were more sinful than you. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Ouch. It's a pretty hard words. But they're true. The instruction is to obey. But we struggle to do so. Ongoing repentance is essential for us. It's something we ought to do daily. Do you remember Luther's 95 Theses? Do you recall what the first one was? It speaks about how repentance is a way of life. We do it to the very end as Christians. But there's more than that to Jesus' instruction for us. As we stand on, on Jordan's stormy banks, yes, repentance is important. But we dare not stop there because Jesus doesn't stop there. We run to Christ. You and I are to turn from transgression and to Jesus. Christ said, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest, exactly. We stand on Jordan's stormy banks in great need, and our only hope is Christ. And if you come to Him, you do not have to tremble at the prospect of going across that river named death. You will be prepared. Death won't be a raging torrent for you. Because Jesus took it and turned it into a trickling stream. So that as the hymn writer put it, no chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that helpful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. Heed the instruction given here. Prepare for the promised land by ongoingly repenting of sin and running to Christ. Because Jesus is the Savior who deflected death's daggers to himself. All for you. That's how you get ready to, for the promised land. You look to Christ. You obey Yahweh's instruction. You turn from sin. And you fly to Jesus. Again and again and again. But there's something else in this text we need to think about. As we prepare for the promised land, it's not simply about receiving instruction, as, as important as that is. Second, we learn about devotion. Verses 12 through 15, after speaking to the tribal leaders, Joshua directed his comments specifically to three groups. Did you catch them? The Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Who in the world are these people? Towards the end of the, wilderness, the, the Israel's wilderness experience, this group of people... Three tribes in the nation of Israel 
They didn't want to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. Numbers 32 and Deuteronomy 3, after, after Israel defeated the Canaanite king, Sihon and Og, this, these, these tribes, they asked Moses if they could stay on the east side of the river. They wanted that to be their inheritance. And Moses, he blasted them for it. He called them a brood of sinful men. They were snakes because it appeared these people were chickening out and helping their brothers and sisters to to conquer the land. Now, they were just going to leave them there to fend for themselves against the armies of Mesopotamia. And as a result, Moses told them, all right, you can have this land on the east side of the Jordan. The Lord will kindly give it to you. But when it comes to everyone else entering the promised land on the west side, Your soldiers must come and fight. There will be no chickening out. Well, in Joshua chapter 1, it's time. The war horn has gone off. And so Joshua, knowing God's word, said, look at verses 13 through 15. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. What was Joshua calling them to do, essentially? to be devoted to the Lord. Consider how kind God had been to them. This was a people who had already known peace. They're on the east side. They had tasted the goodness of God. Their brother's blessing was not realized yet, but theirs was. And so they were to show their devotion to God by keeping their word to God. But even if it inconvenienced them, they were to do that. Yes, even if it made life more difficult for them, absolutely. Their allegiance was to be with the Lord even when it hurts. Like here with husbands and fathers being separated from their families and then placed in the line of fire going off to war. This would be costly obedience. Put yourself in their shoes. Such is the nature of devotion to God. It's costly. Wasn't Christ's obedience costly? Absolutely. He gave his life because he was devoted to the Father. And aren't we called to have the same kind of commitment that's sacrificial, no matter the pain that it might bring? Jesus said, Seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and everything else will be added to us that we need for life and godliness. And one implication of that is we seek the Lord above all things, even when it stings. Following the Lord must be our first priority. Our lives are to revolve around God and His will. 
And we are to do it regardless of the pain that we might feel or the problems that might come because of our obedience to God. Christ's devotion to go to the cross is meant to spur our devotion to Him. We learn here something about dedication and the level of it that we are to show to God. He is to be number one. Do our lives show it? Are we willing to obey regardless of the blowback we might feel from those around us? It's a sobering question. It's one that we need to ask ourselves. Repent if we need to and run back to Christ. I want you to think about devotion from a different angle for just a moment. These two and a half tribes, they weren't simply being called to remain faithful to God. They were being called to, to, to remain faithful to their fellow Israelites. Joshua told them to help. You see that in verse 14? About helping? They were to, to strap on their swords and prepare to join the fight. And yet we do need to ask why. Because did the Lord actually need these two and a half tribes of Israel? I mean, did victory over the foes depend on these warriors? Of course not. I mean, the Lord defeated the armies of Egypt without a single Israelite warrior. Success in battle was not the reason why the Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh were called to come. It's because these tribes were a part of a united people, which meant they needed to show it by expressing their devotion to the rest of the nation. They needed to link arms with one another and join in the fights to support and to encourage their brothers and sisters. And that is really helpful for us because it's a reminder that we don't fight against the flesh, the world, and the devil alone. We do it together. 1 Peter chapter 2, as Christians, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are one people in Christ who go about life east of Eden, wrestling against our foes together, because we are called to help each other. Consider all the one-anothering passages in the New Testament. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of them. We're called to serve one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, be kind and compassionate to one another. On and on we could go. And why so much emphasis in the Bible on this type of one-anothering? Because we are one people, and we are to help each other show it. For example, note Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. It says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's being said there? It's that I need fellow Christians. 
to encourage me. I need fellow Christians to, to bring exhortations to bear upon me. Because without them, I am a sitting duck. I am easy pickings for sin's deceitfulness. I will give in to the lies of my flesh if my brothers and sisters in Christ are not fighting alongside me against sin, strengthening me, encouraging me, rebuking me when that's needed, and comforting me. We need each other to fight well and stand firm in the faith. In Ephesians chapter 6, with the armor of God, every single piece that is mentioned there is put on not individually, but corporately. The pronouns are plural. We wear the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of gospel peace. And we take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. We do it together. We wrestle as one people because we are devoted to each other. And you know this. We won't know the devotion of others if we don't open ourselves up to them. If we remain closed to people, then it makes it hard for them to one another us. And if we don't have that, then we are putting ourselves in danger. A person who tries to go at the faith alone won't make it far. The flesh, the world, and the devil will pick them off. We must open ourselves up and pursue helping one another. Now, too often we wait for people to help us before helping them. It's not Christ-like. He took the initiative to savingly aid us, and we are to follow him. We are to take the initiative. We are to have the get up and go, to go after others and serving them because we are devoted to them. We want to imitate Jesus. Do you know a key for having this kind of devotion that goes after people? that pursues loving and serving them, helping them. Selflessness and humility. Selflessness and humility. And how do we grow in selflessness and humility? We direct ourselves to the selfless and humble Savior. Because the more we fix our gaze on Christ, the more we will become like Christ. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The more we direct our thoughts to Jesus and his work, the more we will direct our attention to others and serve them. You want to know how to prepare yourself for the promised land and the life to come? Grow in devotion to God and to each other. Well, the last thing we want to think about here from this text, though, is the importance of submission. The importance of submission, verses 16 through 18. 
How did these two and a half tribes react to Joshua's charge? Did they start running off a list of excuses? Okay, Joshua, listen, man, we're tired, all right? We've got houses to build, crops to plant, businesses to start. We got families, we got little ones. Surely, you don't expect us to leave our wives at home with all of our children, do you? Did they tell Joshua, no thanks, we'll pass on this one. Look at verse 16. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. What do we make of these comments? I mean, as you hear them, you might wonder, wait a minute. They are pledging to obey Joshua just as they did Moses in all things? They didn't obey Moses in all things. They constantly gave him trouble, grumbling and and rebelling. Because what we have here then, actually a warning for Joshua, saying, he better not believe a single word that's coming out of their mouths. Because if their obedience to him is going to be anything like Moses, well, he needs to watch out. Well, we actually need to remember that these Israelites were largely the second generation to come out of Egypt. They were not their parents who worshipped at the golden calf and were disgruntled all the time. This group was largely faithful to follow Moses, and they pledged a similar submission to Joshua. And on top of that, did you notice how they encouraged Joshua? They told him, only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And then they said, verse 18, look there, only be strong and courageous. They quoted back to him God's word. Because God's leaders need their people to speak back to them God's word. It serves to encourage them. Shouldn't this church's leaders receive the same? We are called to be in submission to our leaders. Not grumble against them. Or complain about their past decisions or present leadership. Remember Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your, over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Don't have a critical spirit towards your elders and deacons. And so far as they follow Christ, follow them. And pray. Pray for your elders, that they would have wisdom to shepherd, love to minister, Insight to teach that they would have help to rule. And likewise, pray for your deacons. 
that they would compassionately and carefully serve, that they would be men of faith and knowledge of the Word, and that they would seek to apply it in their service rather than whine about church leaders. Petition God to work in church leaders. Their task is difficult after all. They have to lead the likes of you and me. And if we know ourselves, we understand just how tough that can be. Your leaders require your regular prayers. As a matter of fact, they need your encouragement. Gladly give it to them. Isn't that what we find the people doing for Joshua? Aren't they building him up? Submitting to his instruction and then rehearsing back to him God's charge and commitment. Such encouragement ought to mark us. And, and there are a thousand ways that you can seek to do this for your leaders. You can encourage them through your words, your presence your service, your attention, your obedience to God's Word, and more. I know, leaders are fickle. We can easily falter. We need your encouragement. And fellow leaders, we need to be faithful, even when we don't get encouragement. We are to undertake our callings, not to get something from people, But to give and give and give, we are to imitate Paul. We are to spend and be spent for the sake of Christ. We are to serve and shepherd, irrespective of the response of others. Faithfulness is our charge. The rest is in God's hands. Which really is a reminder to us all, is it not? about what life entails, because the truth is, we stand on the banks of the life to come. According to Scripture, it's as if we can see across the shore. The only thing that's separating us is death, and a passage like this one teaches us how to prepare for it by giving us some instruction, always be repenting and running to Christ. Gratefully obeying promptly, completely, and with a happy heart. And we, we respond with devotion to God and to one another. We prepare for the promised land by standing with Christ and with each other. And we respond with submission to church leaders, and we seek to encourage them. We know they need it, and we need that encouragement ourselves. We are to be those that live the life that obeys and builds up by keeping our eyes on the Savior who obeyed for us and whose body was broken for us. There's a story that, about Alexander the Great that may not be true, but it makes for a really good sermon illustration especially as we close. Alexander the Great is fighting on the field of battle. His soldiers are 
are struggling. It looks as if they're about to lose. But what do they do? They look at their king. And they say, to him, to him. And it's as they set their eyes on the king who fights with them and for them that they were emboldened to fight all the more. How much more is that not the case with us? We stand on Jordan's stormy banks. To him, to him, to Christ we look. And there lies our strength to keep going and to persevere, receiving the instruction, pursuing devotion, and being a people full of submission. May the Lord help us to do that. Would you pray with me? O oh, great God, thank you for loving us. Thank you, Father, that there is a promised land to come and that this world is not